If you have your Bibles, we're going to do our scripture reading this morning from Psalm 84. So I'll give you a minute to turn there, and I would ask if you're visiting with us and you have not yet filled out a Connect card, please go ahead and do that. You should have gotten one from one of our greeters. Uh, If not, there's some out there in the foyer. It just wants basic information, your name, phone number, email, things like that, so we can make contact with you and follow up and uh, make sure that we're serving you well. So uh, not a real... Not a whole bunch of high-pressure sales pitches, but we do want to be able to, to care well for God's people and make sure that we're serving people in our community well. So please do that. <clears throat> so we'll be again in Psalm chapter 84 this morning. It's to the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of the sons of Korah. And here is the word of the Lord. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, our God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. What glorious comfort we have from God's word this morning and and what a great text to focus our hearts and minds on God as we come to worship him this morning. Will you pray with me? Father, we're thankful for your word and we're thankful that it flies higher than our souls often fly. God, that it that it sees more clearly than our eyes often perceive things to be, God, that it states things so honestly and so truthfully in ways that our what we would call realism uh, doesn't allow us to see. But God, your word cuts through all the, the sinfulness, all the flaws, all the faults of, of humanity, and it, it does tell us truth, God, glorious truth. Sometimes it tells us that the bitter truth about our sinfulness and sometimes like our text today it shines a light on the loveliness the beauty the glory the splendor and the grandeur of our God who is highly exalted who bestows grace and favor who loves his people and God we see a picture here of worship we see a faith and a trust in you and we we see your glory and your virtues extolled and God we want to be like the psalmist this morning as we come here to this meeting place God we want to be your people arrayed in the robes of righteousness that were purchased through Christ God applied by the spirit we want to offer to you this morning worship that would rival the worship we see in this text so God would you free our tongues this morning would you set free our minds and our hearts this morning would you help us to lay down burdens Lord or even in the midst of anguish and agony or distraction despair whatever uh, Whatever emotional state we come in here, God, would you help us through that and in that place to praise and worship a worthy God. 
Would you ring praise from our lips, O God? Would you cause it to spring up with joy out of our hearts? Would you transform this moment, God, that we have come together to share, that it would not just be a... uh, a part of the service, that it would not just be a a check mark on the list of things to do, activities that we perform, but God, that it would be true worship coming from hearts that have been set free, hearts that long and yearn for you like the psalmist does here. And God, may we be those people who long to be in your presence. May May we be those people who see clearly that to be a gatekeeper, a doorkeeper in your house, Lord, a servant, a low servant, is better than being a a prince among sinners. And so, God, we pray this morning that we would rightly evaluate and estimate our sins, that we would see the glories of heaven far outshine and, and are far more rewarding, God, than pursuing sin in this life and its pleasures and its temporary delights. God, change our perspective on life that we would see with heavenly perspective as the psalmist points us to this morning. And would you come and inhabit the praises of your people? God, free us and glorify your Son among us. We ask this, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's have our ushers come forward at this time for our offering this morning. And let me just remind you, we'll be praying this month for CareNet. They were here just a little while ago and shared about the work that they are doing. And many of you took those bottles and you have them at home and are filling them up. We just want to encourage you. Uh, to to go ahead and fill those up and and return them as soon as possible uh, so that we can deliver them. This is such a a needed work that they're doing, such a great thing. So um, also just just be in prayer for them throughout this month. Just maybe uh, write that down on your prayer list, and as you go to the Lord, pray for that ministry. Let's pray this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we, we are delighted this morning that we are free, that we have been set free from the penalty of sin, Lord, we know that if you counted our sin against us, who could stand before you? We, we would not be able to, but we are, are so in awe of you and want to worship you this morning because you've set us free. You gave your son to die in our place, and we praise you for that this morning. Lord, we also praise you that you've set us free from the power of our sin, Lord, that we're no longer enslaved to sin. God, we praise you for that this morning. We pray that you'd help us to walk in that freedom. Help us not to become enslaved once again, but to live out the freedom that we have in Christ. Lord, we pray for our time together this morning, for the offering that's going to be taken right now. We pray that you'd help us to be generous in that. We pray that you would meet the financial needs of our church, Lord, uh, through through the generosity of your people. We pray for CareNet this morning, Lord. There there are many people who are not free, who are enslaved to their sins, and they're looking for answers. And CareNet is such a a vital uh, ministry in Owensboro, helping reach people who are in that darkness. We pray that you would supply their needs, uh, that they would be able to continue to minister and and even to grow as they seek to to build this new building and, and have the equipment and the staff that they need there. Uh, We just pray for your blessing upon them. Uh, We ask all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Take your Bibles this morning. Turn to the book of 1 John, chapter 2. 1 John, chapter 2. I'm actually going to look at two different texts this morning and try to draw them together. Um, We're continuing our series through the book of 1 John, and we're we're doing it in, in a unique way of not really a verse-by-verse verse walking through each chapter, uh, 
but by simply looking at some of the themes that we, we find in the book of First John. And one of the prevailing themes is, is the world. It speaks so much of the world and our relationship. So let's begin reading in First John chapter 2, verse number 15. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now let's look at chapter 4, beginning at verse number 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You know, one of the most difficult struggles in the Christian life is knowing how to relate to the world that we live in. Since God has not taken us out of the world yet, uh, the, the question arises, what are, what are we supposed to do? What's our relationship with the world? Are we supposed to embrace it or are we supposed to shun the world? Are, are we simply supposed to go along with the world or are we supposed to try to go out of the world? What about our attitude toward uh, the world? Should we be angry at the world since it seems to be so sinful? Or should we just try to be kind? Should we be like those who are always protesting at public events and shouting to the crowd about how God hates them? Or should we just try to stay quiet and fit in and be loving people? This is complicated all the more by the fact that the world seems to be increasingly hostile to our values and beliefs. Are we supposed to rise up and fight or sit down and just simply accept defeat? You know, among those who profess Christianity, there are such diverse approaches to those, those questions. In some ways, how you approach the world really is one of the most defining things about your Christianity. In some ways, it's more defining than what denomination you belong to or your doctrinal stances, although those things tend to inform our approach to the world. Uh, but, but your approach to the world, how you relate to the world, is one of the most outwardly, outwardly kind of defining things about Christianity. I mean, among those professing to be Christian, you have people all the way on one end of the spectrum, like the Amish, who are simply saying, let's just go out of the world, Let, let's completely remove ourselves from the world, and, and you have all the way on the other extreme, you have sort of liberal evangelicals that are just living in the world, and there's almost no distinctive difference between them and the world. And so it is a, a, a great struggle. There are groups, those are sort of the, the ends of the spectrum, but there are groups all along that continuum. Continuum. You have some groups that are very loudly preaching a message of condemnation and wrath and other groups that are completely focused on showing mercy with no talk of any kind of, of judgment. You have some groups that d dress differently and school differently uh, and some groups that don't distinguish themselves in, in any discernible way. At the heart of the differences between these groups is, is understanding how the Christian needs to relate 
to the world. What in the world are we supposed to do? Well, thankfully, the Bible gives us some guidance, uh, and that's what we want to look at this morning. In fact, the Gospel of John and the letters of, of John speak frequently uh, about the world. Just in the, just in the little letter, First John, I mean, it's such a short letter, but just in the first letter uh, of, of John, uh, the first epistle, the word world, cosmos, is the, the Greek word, uh, but cosmos is used 23 times. And it isn't just that he uses the word incidentally. There's much wisdom that he gives to us about what the world is and how we ought to relate to the world. And what, what we see, I think, when we look to, uh, whether we're talking about the Gospel of John or talking about the epistles of John, is that there is a tension. At the heart of, of his teaching, I think there is a tension when it comes to the Christian's relationship to the world. And I think that's precisely why we find it so difficult, is because we don't do well with tensions, do we? It, it's so hard to be balanced. Just as individuals in our life, isn't, isn't it hard to be balanced? Uh, it, you, you know, you, you think, well, we've got to take care of our finances, so you become over here on this on this one end of the spectrum where you're just overly concerned about money. Uh, but if you, you say, well, hey, I need to back off a little bit, well, then you come all the way over here and you're just spending money that you need to be a little more cautious about. It's hard to walk that balance, isn't it? Let, let's be disciplined with our money, but let's not be, you know, Scrooge. And, and let's not make money, you know, the purpose of, of our existence. just difficult to balance that out. We don't do well with tensions. We don't do well with, with keeping balance. And I think this tension that we find when we come to the epistles and the gospel of, of, of John is, is part of the reason you have such extremes. Because you have in, in, within Christianity, professing Christianity, you have people on one end who are, who are getting part of that tension. Uh, and, and then you have people on the other end who are getting the other part of that tension. But they've, they've neglected this first part. So what we want to do is we want to come to the word. We want to come to John's epistle and we want to see this balance and we want to try to adjust our lives, hopefully, to, to walk in that balance a, a little bit better. Before we do that, let's just consider, first of all, a definition. What is the world? When we use that word, what, what do we mean? I, I think some try to distinguish uh, and make the world have various dis disconnected meanings. So John could say world one time and he means one thing and when he says world another time, he means something altogether different. I don't really hold that view. I think the, the world is a concept. Uh, it's, it's something that, that encapsulates a lot of different facets. Uh, it has different facets, but they're all, part of the, they're all part of the whole. So when John uses the word world, he doesn't mean something one time and something together, altogether different an, another time. It's, it's, uh, it's the same thing. D.A. Carson says this, and, and I think gives a helpful definition. He says, the world is the, the created order. It's the created order, especially of human beings and human affairs in rebellion against its maker. So there are three facets to that, that definition. First of all, uh, the world is the created order. This, this refers generally to the sort of the created realm, including the world as a place. It's, it's the earth. Uh, the, the physical earth. And so we have, for instance, in John 1, 9 and 10, it, it speaks of Jesus coming into the world and, and being in the world. And that's what it's talking about. It's talking about the world sort of as a physical realm, as a physical earth. But then secondly, he says, especially of human beings and human affairs. And so the word world refer, refers particularly 
to humanity sort of as a collective group, people, the realm of mankind. We see this concept in in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. It's talking about the collective group of humanity, and, and the world doesn't know us because it didn't know Christ. Thirdly, this collective group, he says, uh, this collective group is in rebellion against its maker. So this collective group forms something of a system, and that system is in sinful rebellion against God. So we see, for instance, in John, 1 John 5, 19, he says, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so the, the world is seen as this system. It's, it's this place, but it's the people. It's, it's humanity as a collective group that forms a system. And this entire system is in opposition and again, in rebellion against God. That's what the world is. And I think he always has that in mind. The key is to understand that whenever John uses the word world, he almost always has a negative connotation. There's always that negative element of the world as the system that is opposed to God. Consider just some of the things that John says. I'm going to try to run through these really quickly. You could write them down if you want to look at them later. Uh, But I'll give you the references. But we're going to look at the gospel and then the epistle of John. And listen to what John says and and how uh, it, it clearly is seen as a negative thing. John 7, 7 says, the world cannot hate you, Jesus speaking, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. So the world hates Jesus because he brings the light and their works are evil. So they they hate him and now uh, uh, they hate us. They hate his followers. John 14, 17 says that the world cannot receive the spirit of God because it neither sees him nor knows him. John 14, 30 references Satan as the ruler of this world. John 15, 18 to 19 speaks of his disciples and he says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. But because I've chosen you out of the world as my disciples, now the world's going to hate you. John 16, 9 says the, the world does not believe in Jesus. John 16, 20 says the world would rejoice when Jesus was crucified. John 17, 25, not only does the world not know Jesus or his disciple, it says in John 17, 25, that the world does not know his father. John 18, Jesus said that his kingdom was not of this world. And then in 1 John, some of the things that are say, stated, 1 John 2, 15, the things of this world are, are sinful. The desires of this world are sinful, and they're going to pass away under the, the judgment of God. Chapter 3, verse 1 says the world does not know Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 13 says the world hates believers. Chapter 4, verse 1 says that false teachers have gone out into the world, and the world receives false teachers, but but those who teach the truth, the world will not receive. And then what I've already read, chapter 5, verse 19 says, the whole world lies under the power of Satan. And so what is the world then? It's this created realm. It's, It's where we live but it's especially us as a group of people, a collective body of all humanity that is organized in opposition against God. So how, how are we to relate to the world? Well, what I'm going to say is that there's actually a tension all throughout the gospel and the epistle 
of, of 1 John, there's, there's a tension, and this tension is this. We don't love the world. We are not to love the world, but we do love the world. We don't love the world, but we do love the world. Now let me define and, and, and hopefully explain what, I, what I'm saying here. First of all, we are not to love the world with an alluring infatuation for the world. Uh, you see this in our text. It's very clear. Chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world. Okay, So there's one element of that tension. Very clear. Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eye and the pride of life, it is not from God but is from the world. And this world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So John here, when he talks about loving the world, he's speaking of a love uh, for the world that would be attracted to the world. It's the kind of love that would be allured or enticed by the world, the kind of love that looks at this collective rebellion of humanity and says, I want to join that. I want to go along with that. That looks fun. That looks good. It looks enticing. It looks appealing. I want that. This is the kind of love that looks with approval on the world and desires what the world has. I, I want that. I see the way they're acting. I see the way they're living. And that's what I want. I love that. That's the kind of love that John is saying, don't love the world like that. That, that in, alluring kind of infatuation. One person says this kind of love is the selfish love of participation. We can't love the world if we're, we're Christians. That's what this passage says. And we can't because the world is driven by, it's motivated, it's fueled by its sinful desires. Do you see what he says here? For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh. Just begin there. These are our cravings, our, our sinful cravings that, uh, that are, are internal to us, these inter internal longings that we have that, that are inclined away from obedience to God, the, those internal longings and desires that we have that don't lead us to want to follow God and submit to God, but they lead us to want to rebel against what God has, has said. And that's, that's what John is saying here. Look, the world, don't love the world because what's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the, those longings that, that you have. The, the world operates on those. That's what motivates them. The, the, the world operates on, on the basis of if it feels right, do it. I just reminded of the song this morning. If it, if it makes me happy, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad, right? Cheryl Crow, right? Uh, that's, that's the mindset of, of the world. It's, it's driven by the sinful urges, lust and anger and pride. So if a woman looks attractive, sleep with her. If someone makes you mad, punch them in the mouth or cuss them out. If, if something brings you pleasure, do it. That's how the world operates. And you can't love that and love God. There's the desires of the flesh and then there's the desires of the eye. That is the desire for things which look appealing to us. John Stott says this, this seems to indicate temptations which assault us not from within, but from without through our eyes. This is the tendency to be captivated by the outward show of things without inquiring into their real values. Eve's view of the forbidden fruit 
as pleasing to the eye. Achan's covetous sight among the spoil of a beautiful robe from Babylonia and David's lustful looking after Bathsheba as she bathed are obvious examples. It will include the love of beauty divorced from the love of goodness. And so I think that that passage uh, all the way back to Adam and Eve is is really what this is driving at. It says that that Eve saw the fruit that, that it was desirable for to make one wise. It was appealing to her eyes and desirable to make one wise. There, there was an attractiveness to this thing that God had prohibited, this thing that God had restricted. And yet through her eyes, she looked at it and it looked appealing. And there are things in this world, and that's what fuels and motivates the people of this world, is there are things that look attractive and God has restricted them. God has prohibited them, but people operate on the basis of their desire for the things that look appealing to them. And then thirdly, there is the pride of life or the, some translations, the pride in possessions. What this is, is a, a misplaced sense of greatness that comes through material possessions and powerful positions. The misplaced sense of greatness, that's the pride. And, and it's the pride of life that is the things that give us life. Uh, that, that is material possessions and, and power. So it's exalting ourselves to a greater status based upon our power and possessions. Again, John Stott says this, the person, this person boasts of what he has and does. His arrogance relates to his external circumstances. In other words, the idea is I'm great because of who I am, the position that I have, and the things that belong to me. It, it artificially in, inflates that sense of greatness based upon those things. And again, that's the way the world operates. That those are the kinds of desires that, that fuel and motivate the world, those internal base desires that they have, the, 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 the desire for things that look appealing, though God has prohibited them, and, and the desire to be great because of the possessions and the power that you have. All of that's what, what's in the world. And here, the Apostle John says, you can't love that and love God. You see, the, the two are mutually exclusive. If you love the world, look, look at verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You just can't. You cannot love God and love the world. At first, there's a command there. Don't do this. Don't do it. Don't, don't love the things of the world. But, but then there's just a, an absolute statement that is to say, you can't do it. You can't at one time be pursuing God and loving God and pursuing your fleshly desires and the things of this world and possessions and power. You can't be pursuing both of them. If you have the love of the world in you, you don't have the love for God in you. They're, they're mutually exclusive. So Christians, what, what has captured your heart? What has your affections this morning? Far too many. I think far too many professing Christians, and I say professing Christians because I'm not altogether sure that they are Christians because John says you don't have love for God if you have love for the world, but far too many Christians, professing Christians, seem to love this world with this sort of alluring infatuation. I want what the world has. There's a longing, there's a desire that is compelling them, not toward God, but it's compelling them to the things of this world. John's saying you can't do both. That's, that's not who we are as Christians. 
Christians, do we let the world set the standard for us? Their, their expectations. Do we mirror the world's behaviors? Do we watch with delight as people do things that are sinful against God? Do we listen and enjoy things that are offensive to God? Are we allured by money and by power? Is that the motivating force in, in our life? We need to be careful about that. John's saying here, you can't love God and love the world in those ways. They're, they're mutually exclusive. And then there is this warning that I would ask you to heed this morning and to consider this world is passing away, verse 17, along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Listen, those urges and, and that, that desire for the things that look beautiful and, and that pride that you get because you've got this much money or, or the possessions that you have, that, that, that greatness that you feel, guess what? All of that's going away. It's all going to be fading away very, very quickly. And if you set your hope and your desires on those things, this verse says you're going to pass away with it. So if that's where your love is, then when, when God, when Christ returns and this world comes to an end and those things pass away, you're going to pass away with them. You will perish with that. But if you do the will of God, if you love God, you abide forever. So it is a warning for us Christians. We are not to love the world with an alluring infatuation. But secondly, the second half of this tension, if you want to call it that, is that we do love the world. We do love the world with a redemptive compassion for the world. You see, it's not that he's using the word world in different ways. I really think he's talking about different kinds of love. We don't have this kind of attraction to the world as Christians, but we do have compassion for the world. Where I'm drawing this from is because I believe that God is our model in this and God has a redemptive love for this world. So when John says in chapter 2, verse 15, don't love the world, he's not saying don't have compassion for the world. He's saying don't be allured and attracted and enticed by the world. But, but he's not saying, hey, don't, don't have any compassion for the world because God himself has compassion for the world. And all we have to do is just run through uh, John, to, to see this. I mean, the, the most famous verse that anyone knows, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world, this realm, this domain of humanity that is collectively organized against him and in rebellion and opposition to him. The, the Lord loved, God loved that, which is amazing. It's mind-blowing that God would love the world. And that, that's what some, some people emphasize I think the wrong thing is for God so loved the world there I think there is an emphasis there but but I think we should read that with astonishment D.A. Carson makes that point he says we, we should read it like for God so loved the world uh, can you believe that that God would love the world but that's exactly what it says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life God's love for the world is what precipitates his giving for, of his son. And then faith, the faith of God's people is what actuates that salvation. He loved the world so that whoever believes in Christ would be saved and have eternal life. Then we go to 1 John. We could look at other places in John, but 1 John chapter 4, 
Verse 9, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his son into the world. So to, to make manifest means to reveal something. And, and John is saying here, how did, how did God reveal his love to us? How did he make it known? He revealed it to us by sending his son into the world. Now, the reality is, uh, we as God's people, John says, have been called out of the world. But, but, but initially, we're part of the world. Uh, the, the way that we receive uh, salvation is because God had a love for the world, and the world that we were part of, that, that collective group that is in opposition uh, against God. We as Christians have been called out of it, but, but we were part of that world. And so God sent his son into the world as a display of love uh, for, for the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, we were part of that collective group against in opposition and rebellion against God. We didn't love God, but he loved us and has sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. First John 4, 13 through 16. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. The love he has for us, we know because he sent his Son to be the Savior of the world, the world that we belong to, the world that we were a part of. And then whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God receives the salvific benefits of this gift. And then one more, 1 John chapter 2. Verses one through three, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. This this expression, the whole world is the same expression that that is used when he says the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. It's the same, same expression. So there is a sense, I believe, in which the, the death of Christ was a, was a sacrifice for the sins of the world. Now, the, the objection might be, how can we reconcile God's love for the whole world with the fact that the Bible also speaks of God's special love for his sheep and for his chosen people? And I would say, Quickly, I'll try to say just a few things. If that's on your mind, uh, let, let me just say this. First of all, I'd echo the words of, of Richard Baxter who said this, when, when God saith so expressly that Christ died for all, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15, and tasted death for every man, Hebrews 2, 9, and is the ransom for all, 1 Timothy 2, 6, and the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, 1 John 2, 2. It is fitting for every Christian to explain in what sense Christ died for all, rather than to flatly deny it. Secondly, I just say this, I, I don't think we have to figure everything out. We, we, there are tensions in, in the scripture, and we just, sometimes those tensions don't fit neatly in our nice little uh, complete theological system, and, and, and we can try to round off the edges so that they do, but that's not what we ought to do. Third, I would say this, we, we can say that God may have a unique love for his people, 
for his sheep whom he has chosen out of the world, but that does not negate his general love for all the world. Again, D.A. Carson says this. Let me, let me read this. Many scholars find it impossible to reconcile this verse, talking about John 3.16, with the more restrictive circle of love that dominates the rest of the book. Throughout the book, it's the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, the, the Spirit, they love the disciples, the disciples love them. There's this circle of love, and so now it's, it's almost hard for people to, how does that fit together now that it says God loved the world? How does that make, make sense with that more restrictive view? He, he goes on to say with the, the more restrictive uh, view that dominates the rest of the book and with the persistent threat of judgment that stands over the world. So how, how does that make sense? God says the, he loves the world and yet the world is under his wrath and condemnation. How, how can those things fit together? He says because of this they, they postulate theories and he explains some of them and he goes on to say God maintains the same stance toward the world. He pronounces terrifying condemnation on the ground of the world's sin while still loving the world so much that the gift he gave to the world, the gift of his son, remains the world's only hope. A apart from God's love for the world, the very world that stands under his wrath, no one would be saved. Where there is a redeemed community, it, it does stand in a different and a richer relationship of love with God than does the world. But that distinction cannot legitimately be made to call into question the love of God for a world under his judgment. What an amazing thing. There, there's a tension, isn't there? God, God has wrath and condemnation that he's going to pour out on the world, and yet he at the same time loves and gives his son as a sacrifice for the world. This, this balance of the way God relates is, is all through the Bible. It's not just John. It's not just John. You see, for instance, in Jeremiah, God pronounces judgment on Moab. There's judgment coming, judgment coming. And then at the same time, in Jeremiah 48, 31, and verse 36, he says, Therefore my heart moans for Moab like a flute, and my heart moans like a flute for the men of Kirahasheth. There, there's, this, there's this sadness, there's this brokenness, and yet at the same time, there's a resolute commitment to bring judgment upon the wicked. Ezekiel 33, 11, God says, it says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his ways and live. When Jesus looked at the crowds, the crowds who often rejected him, it says so many times he saw them and he had compassion on them. But these are the same crowds that, that he would at times say, look, judgment's coming upon you. There's this, this balance Jesus weeps. He looks at Jerusalem and he says in, in Matthew 23, 37, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as hens gather her brood under her wings and you were not willing. So here's this tender compassion, this love that he has. He's saying, you, you're so sinful. And, and he goes on to say in verse 38, your house is left unto you desolate. He pronounces judgment on Jerusalem. But at the same time, he has compassion for them. In Ephesians, we see this as well. It speaks even directly about us as Christians. We Christians were not always Christians. We were not always the objects of God's love in this way. Uh, we, we, we were, it says in Ephesians, objects of wrath like the rest of mankind, like the rest of the world. 
We were objects of God's wrath before his redemptive, the redemptive love of Christ broke in. And that's what we see, uh, I think, in, in John, in, in the way this balances out. The world is this sinful place of rebellion against God, yet, at the very same time, it's the object of God's redemptive love. Think again of John 3.16, for God so loved the world, this place of rebellion. How amazing is it? Think, think of everything that we said about what the world is, that it hates Christ, that it hates his people, that it's in, it's in rebellion. How, how amazing is it then that God loved a dark, evil place that hates him, hates his son and the followers of his son, a place that does not and will not receive or believe in his son, a place that will not have his son rule over them as its king, but prefers to have Satan as its ruler, a place that is so in love with darkness that it hates the light. That's why it should astonish us. So there's that tension, uh, even, even in God's love. God does not love the world in, in, in a way that he's enticed by the sinfulness of the world. John says in 1 John that he's light and in him is no darkness at all. God finds nothing appealing or attractive about the rebellion. In, in, in fact, it, it brings his anger and wrath and condemnation. And, and yet there's a sense in which God has a redemptive love for the world. And I think this morning that's what we are to emulate. We're not to love the world and be enticed and be attracted to the world. We don't want to be the world. We, want, we don't want to have what the world has because it's passing away. It's, it's not of God but of the world and, and it's passing away. We don't love the world like that but we ought to have a redemptive, compassionate love on the world. We're to emulate God's redemptive love for the world. So application this morning, number one, keep that tension. And it's so hard. As I said this morning at the start, isn't it so hard to stay out of the ditches on both sides? We, we, we as human beings, we just seem to want to veer into this ditch. And then when we correct, oh, let's overcorrect over here. Now we're in this ditch over here. And that's just where, where, where we struggle. We, we must understand. Listen, understand this. The world does stand under the condemnation of God. It is in rebellion against God. And God is righteous and holy. And he is right to pour out his wrath and condemnation on this world. And he is going to do that. Yet we must remember that God has a redemptive plan for the world. And I see people struggling to, to do both of those. Some people remember that the world is against God. They're, they're good at that. And, that, and that, that it stands under God's condemnation. And because of this, they, they do well at not being infatuated with the world. On the other hand, they, they tend to maintain a posture of condemnation to the world. They look on it with disgust and anger. They know nothing of the compassion of Christ who would weep over the city of Jerusalem. They don't weep over anything in this world. They look at the world in rebellion against God and they say, you get what's coming to you, right? They're, they hate the world. There's anger toward the world. They know nothing of the compassion of Christ that would weep over the city of Jerusalem. They don't understand statements like the one the apostle Paul makes that he says, I wish I could, if I could be accursed, uh, so that it would bring salvation to my people, I, I would do it. Although God says that he does not delight in the death of the wicked, some professing Christians seem to de delight in the destruction 
of the world, people of the world. We need to remember that whoever does not love has not been born of God. If God so loved the world, we ought to have a redemptive compassion for the world as well. So that's on one side. Others, they seem to be able to maintain some level of compassion for the world. They have not lost touch with God's redemptive plan, yet yet these folks tend to be infatuated with the world. Their compassion becomes misused when they begin to make excuses or minimize the sin of the world. Well, we, we love these people. We, we care for them so much. Can we really say that God will condemn them? That doesn't seem loving. Can, can we really tell them, and unless they repent and turn to Christ, they will not be saved? Let's just not talk about God's holy wrath. Let's, let's not say that if people live according to the desires of this flesh, they will perish along, the world, along with the world. All those things don't seem to be loving, and so we don't, we don't want to say that. But here we are as biblical Christians. We've got to stand right in the middle of those two extremes. And we've got to say, yes, there's wrath. Yes, there's condemnation. Yes, there is judgment. Yes, sin is sin. And we're not going to redefine sin so that you can feel good about yourself. That's not loving anyway. And, and on the other side, we're not going to be so, become so hateful and angry toward the world. We're going to continue to maintain a spirit of compassion and love, a a, a desire to see them redeemed and come to know Christ. And we just need to live in this tension. And it's so hard to stay there. It's so hard. But that's where we've got to do where we've got to be. We've got to stay out of those ditches. And people seem to struggle with that. Just keep the tension. Secondly, we need to remember that we've been sent into the world. God's redemptive love for the world is a giving and an ascending love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That he, In 1 John, he sent him into the world to be the propitiation, to be the savior of the world. The father sent the son, and the son and the father sent the spirit into the world. But guess what? You and I have been sent into the world as well. Christ has sent us into the world. In John 20, verse 19, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Listen, we've been sent into the world. So we don't get to sit back and say, well, the the world's just going to be condemned and we're just going to pull away from the world and we're just going to stay over here in our holy huddle and just let the world go to hell uh, and, and we've got to be separated. We don't want to love the world. We, we don't want to be part of the world, so we're just going to stay over here and, and keep away from the world so we don't fall into that ditch, but, but we lose the fact that we're sent into the world. As I've been sent into the world, Jesus says, the Spirit's been sent into the world. Now you as my disciples have been sent into the world. So are you living in the world, not, not with infatuation for the world, but with this redemptive plan on your mind? That's what you've been sent there for to be a light, to point people to Jesus Christ, that they might be redeemed, that they might be saved. You've been sent into the world. Number three, don't be surprised if even though you love the world, they they hate you. Even if you have this redemptive love for the world, they they will hate you. John, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. 1 John 3, 11 through 15 says, don't be surprised, brother, 
Brothers, when the world hates you, it's going to happen. You say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm seeking to be compassionate. I'm trying to love the world and, and, and I'm not trying to be ugly or unnecessarily hurtful or mean, but I do. I am going to stand on what God's word says. Well, when you do that, the world's going to hate you. But, but you see, that's part of that tension. When the world hates us, what do we want to do? We want to respond, well, fine then. I, I'm just going to go out of the world. Just, just let, forget about you. All. No, no, no. Stay in there. Keep, keep loving the world. Keep, keep demonstrating the love of Christ to the world. That's where we're supposed to be. Don't be surprised if the, the world hates you. Part of the challenge is so difficult to love those who are against you, but that's precisely what God has done for us. Even while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. And then fourth and finally this morning, remember that you are victorious. Remember that you're victorious. Don't, don't despair. It can feel defeating when we see the world opposed to us and opposed to things that we hold so precious. When we love the Lord and we love the things of God and we look at the world and we see the chaos and we see that collective rebellion against God, it can be so, it, it, it makes you want to be angry and then if you're not angry, it causes you to want to just despair. Look how wicked our world is. We might as well just give up. We might as well just throw in the towel, forget about this world because it's messed up. So many Christians say, well, the end has got to be now. And, and when I hear Christians say that, you know, the end must be here, I hear Christians just giving up, right? Maybe that's not what they mean, but I, but I hear, hear them saying, well, this is just the end times and things are going to get so wicked and there's nothing we can do about it. That's not where we're called to be. Remember, you are victorious. We are victorious through Jesus Christ. Part of our anger and despair comes from the fact or part of our anger comes from the fact that we have a sense of despair, but we need not despair. First John chapter four, verse six <clears throat> says, little children, you are from God and you have you have not you will you have overcome them for he who is in you is he is greater than he who is in the world. We have victory. First John five. 2 to 5 says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You have victory. Don't despair. Don't, don't get discouraged. Don't look and say, look how wicked our world. Look at the things that the United States are doing. I can't believe our country has fallen so far. I, I can't believe that it's like this. No, no, no. You're not in a place of defeat. We have victory over this world. So don't despair. Hold that tension. Stay in there. Continue to show that redemptive love. Don't fall into those ditches on either side. Let's pray this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you. We're so amazed that you would love us, the world, the, the, this wicked place and rebellion against you. God, you would have been right just to bring condemnation and wrath upon all of us. None of us deserve your mercy. And yet you loved us enough to send your son into the world to be the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Lord, we praise you that, that you would be that gracious, that your love would extend that far. That blows our minds. Lord, may we never get over that fact and may that reality, your love for us, compel us then to be loving to the world. 
have a redemptive love for them. Help us understand that we're really no different than they are apart from your grace, apart from your love being extended from, to us. Uh, we're, we're not different than them. Help us continue to love them, continue to be sent into the world with the gospel. Help us not to retreat or to become angry. God, we pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.